3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum... Covering national politics has never been easy, but since the January 6th insurrection, the landscape has become even harder to navigate for the media. How does the Fourth Estate hold accountable powerful elected officials who spout or support dangerous conspiracies? We'll talk with media critic and writer Jay Rosen about the press's handling of a major party that's continuing the lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump as it moves this week to strip from leadership a House Republican, who refuses to encourage the big lie. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. House Minority Leader California's Kevin McCarthy has told his Republican members to expect a vote tomorrow on removing Representative Liz Cheney from her leadership position. Cheney, conference chair from Wyoming, has repeatedly called out the lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. And the vote to oust the third highest Republican is the latest manifestation of a party continuing the voter fraud lie. Once again, it's also bringing to the fore the debate over how the media should handle elected officials who spout anti-democratic conspiracies or quietly vote to uphold them. Joining us now is media critic, writer, and NYU journalism professor Jay Rosen. Professor Rosen, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Well, thank you for having me.
3: You know, before we get into how reality-based media should hold accountable people who spout or silently go along with the big lie, I do want to get your take on what's happening with Liz Cheney, a very conservative Republican in the House who is poised to lose her leadership position for supporting an obvious truth that Joe Biden is a legitimately elected president. What's the bigger picture here in your view?
4: I think the bigger picture is we have uh, a two party system in which one of the two parties has turned anti-democratic And for the moment, Liz Cheney is fighting against that. And so in a sense, although nobody in journalism would put it this way, she's on the side of the journalism world because she believes that um, what actually happened matters. Truth matters. Things like verification matter, proof, evidence. And um, she's willing to sacrifice her political career on that, among other things that she is standing up for. And so there's an alignment, not an alliance, but an alignment between what uh, Liz Cheney is standing up for and what journalists have to stand up for if they're going to be true to their calling. Uh, and that's a kind of an unusual Uh, arrangement of players, um, and that's why it's so interesting to me as a critic and observer.
3: Yeah, an unusual arrangement of players for unprecedented times, I guess, to some extent, but also I hadn't thought about it as an alignment with journalism. So is that what you mean when you say that the GOP has become counterfactual?
4: Mm -hmm. Well, what I have been trying to explain to the people who follow me and read me, uh, is that the GOP has become two things at once, counter-majoritarian, and that makes it counterfactual. And here's what I mean. The GOP has become counter-majoritarian in the sense that it doesn't accept the the vote, um, and it kind of understands itself now as a minority party, mostly white, um, that is under threat from the wider culture uh from changes in technology uh and from the evolution of american democracy and it is willing to change the rules of the game in order to have a shot at power as a minority and in order to do that you have to lie about the world because um uh, it's very difficult to advance the argument we are a minority and we deserve the right to rule and so instead, they want to talk about election fraud and election integrity and stolen election uh, and other crazy things like what's going on in Arizona right now. Right. Um, and and so when because they've adopted this counter-majoritarian stance, the GOP ha- has to fight against reality, against facts. Uh, and that is um, why... Liz Cheney is um, battling the leadership structure. And it also means that the Republican Party has evolved into a place where it has to collide with journalism. And that's what interests me as a journalism professor and critic.
3: Yes, it has to collide with journalism because basically the role of journalism is to fact check and to hold people accountable, especially if they are, in fact, saying things that are lies or are not true.
4: Yes, um, and there is no other side to who won the 2020 election. It's not like there's another side.
3: Right. And, And so what does... The media do about this? I mean, it seems like, and you can tell me what you think, that you know we've evolved from a straight both sides model of news coverage.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the press has been forced to evolve from a strict both sides model of news coverage by the events of the last few years by the eruption of Donald Trump into the system and and by the changes that have overcome the Republican Party, yeah.
3: Yes, and we have been forced to, uh, in part because of our own culpability in creating a situation (laughs) as well, because of our inability to really handle it well as it came along, right?
4: Yes, so the way I try to phrase this is... asymmetry between the major parties fries the circuits of the mainstream press. (laughs) And this has been true for a while. In fact, uh, I I like to start that story, could start at a lot of different times, but I like to start that story in 2012 um, when Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann, two ultimate insiders in Washington politics and journalism, came out with their book it's uh, even worse than it looks which is about this asymmetry between where the republican party was going and where a normal political party goes and they tried to alert uh the washington press that something was happening here that doesn't fit the both sides model of politics that underlies a lot of political journalism and they were ignored and isolated um, and now we have this situation where the asymmetry has grown to such a degree that um, the press sort of can't ignore it anymore. And mm-hmm. if you are pro-truth, pro-verification, pro-facts, you are, as I said earlier, on a collision course with the Republican Party.
3: We're talking with Jay Rosen, press critic, NYU journalism professor, editor of PressThink.org, about the challenges of covering the Republican party in a post insurrection landscape a party he describes as anti-democratic and your listeners can join the conversation if you'd like with your thoughts as well about about how the media should hold accountable those who supported the insurrectionists those who promote the, the big lie or the falsehood that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. How would you judge the media's coverage so far? You can tell us at 866 Again, 866 733 You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Okay, so, so Jay Rosen this has happened. This asymmetry has grown very large. We also now have people in very powerful positions who are very willing to promote lies, for example, and and uh, to even basically say you can't even believe the fact that you can't even believe what is true, which is the fact that there was a legitimate election and that Joe, Br- Joe Biden is the legitimate president. So they are in these positions of power, what does the media do about it? I mean, they have the ability to have an effect on people's lives. So then do you bring them on your programs? Do you write about them? Do you provide the media coverage so that people understand how they think?
4: Well, this is a difficult problem. Um, The one thing you can't do is just pretend that there's no issue here and behave like we have normal politics in which you would bring the um uh, minority leader on as a matter of course on sunday morning or something like that um so you you can either decide that you're not going to platform them which is a new verb like you're not going to give them a platform Mm -hmm. uh until they return to reality until they acknowledge the results of the election until they drop this big lie strategy that's one way to go uh, another way to go um, is to bring them on air, but begin the conversation and 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 make them account for their views, um, which is essentially an adversarial uh, proceeding. And there's lots of advantages to that. There's a lot of problems with that as well. Uh, and then a third strategy is to contextualize the big lie instead of focusing just on the falsehoods that uh, politicians are spouting. You you sort of contextualize them by saying, "Here's why they keep saying this, and here's what the larger picture is." And you you sort of take the emphasis off the lie itself, even though you mention it, and and show that there's a method here. They're they're trying to win through this lie. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a different way of approaching it. But the main conclusion I have is that none of those methods are really a solution. You can make better or worse choices. You can you can like handle the situation gracefully or poorly, but there's really no answer to a political party and political leadership that is determined to present the public a false picture of what happened when what happened is irrefutable.
3: So if there is no answer, where do you, or no solution, I guess, is the better way to put it, as you said, where do you see this headed?
4: Well, um, (laughs) lately, last few weeks, um, it's been headed towards a shift in political coverage on TV, at least, where some journalists are just becoming much more aggressive about saying that's a lie, or the Republican Party is now based around lies, um, or in forcing representatives of the Republican Party to account for their behavior, There's there's been a shift in tone. And I I think part of the reason for that is this um, drama with Liz Cheney. Um, and there's something about, the, as I said earlier, the alignment of players that that makes this different. One of one of the big factors here is that Liz Cheney is a conservative. She's a very hardcore right wing conservative, right? Um, and and so by kind of like supporting her claim, the news media can be kind of balanced in a way because it's actually giving. Um, platform when it talks about Liz Cheney and her battle to a conservative and, and is not uh, conforming to the stereotype the right wing has of, you know, left leaning or liberal bias. Um, and so so that's part of a factor going on, too. But um, we don't really know what big league journalism is going to do about this situation precisely because. Um, a two-party system in which one of the two parties is anti-democratic isn't something anyone ever learned about in journalism school. There's not a page about it in the handbook.
3: So true. Well, we'll have more with you after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us.
0: This is
3: Forum. I'm Meena Kim. We're talking about the challenges of covering the Republican Party in a post-insurrection landscape. And this is CNN's Jake Tapper recently talking about the difficulties.
5: The January 6th insurrection was incited by months and months of spreading these lies. Beyond that is the fact that when it comes to lies like this and the House Republican caucus and the leaders like McCarthy and Steve Scalise, they're like Doritos. You can't just do one. You keep lying and lying and lying. The lie about the election on its own is anti-democracy, and it is sowing seeds of ignorance in the populace, uh, and obviously has uh, the potential to incite violence. But beyond that is, if you're willing to lie about that, what are you not willing to lie about? If one side of the argument is not willing to stick to standards and facts uh, for, for a whole host of reasons. One of them is, how am I supposed to believe anything they say? If they're willing to lie about Joe Biden wanting to steal your hamburgers and QAnon and the big lie about the election, what are they not willing to lie about? Why should I put any of them on TV?
3: That's CNN's Jake Tapper, questioning whether he should put people who are willing to lie about the results of the 2020 presidential election on his show, especially in a post-insurrection landscape. And that's what we're talking about with Jay Rosen, media critic and NYU journalism professor and writer. And we're inviting you, our listeners, to join the conversation. How would you judge the media's coverage of Politicians like Jake Tapper is talking about, people who promote the falsehood that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. What should the press do differently? How can media better hold to account those who supported the insurrectionists. Curious also what you think your role is as a media consumer. Again, the number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. And Jay Rosen, I just you know, you're hearing Jake Tapper there questioning whether or not we should even bring them on. And a lot of that also has to do with the fact that bringing people on has no longer become a way of exposing lies. It it can also actually become a platform, as you say, for spreading their misinformation, even if you're debunking it, right? You're mm-hmm. still potentially spreading it. Can you just also let me know if there are any you know pitfalls or advantages of not bringing them on that I'm missing here?
4: Well, it it's a very difficult problem in, in disinformation. Um, generally you don't want to help it spread. And so not playing up or platforming those kinds of lies is the best policy. However, sometimes you can't do that because, um, the person spreading the lie is too important or it's begun to affect, um, events in an important way. Uh, Or um, your audience simply has to know that this is uh, false. So you can't always um, use the turn down the volume uh, method. But Jake Tapper was saying something else there that I think is really important to highlight for our, our audience here. He was acknowledging that underneath normal behavior in news television. CNN, NPR, if I may say so, and CBS, ABC, is a kind of model of how politics works that assumes there's a common world of fact, everyone shares it, and the two parties have different views on those facts and different priorities that they're going to explain to us when we bring them on air. This world is not based on a model where one party rejects a proven reality and the other party accepts it. And what Jake Tapper is saying when he says, why should I have these people on air? Is that they are um, refuting the entire model that we work with. And he's kind of announcing that we're at sea here. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's trying to recenter journalism on on a slightly different idea, which is not, we have to, air both sides but we have to be pro-truth
3: well let me go to caller carrie in san jose hi carrie join us hi
6: Hi, i agree that journalists need to call out lies and be pro-truth and my understanding is that there was a law until the reagan administration that journalists couldn't lie um and present it as truth
3: uh journalists or, or guests um I mean, I I don't know if Kerry's referring to the fairness doctrine here, but there's a lot of concern, Jay Rosen, that that's not going to save us.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I confront this view a lot online that somehow there was a law against lying and it went away. Um, It's not really true. There was something called the fairness doctrine. It never applied to cable news because it was based on the idea that the airwaves, the public airwaves, belong to the American people. Therefore, they behavior on them can be regulated. But what it essentially said is that you, you can't just give platform to one point of view. If you do that, you have to also air the other point of view. The idea that at one time lying was illegal is not a good description of American history.
3: Let me go next to another caller from San Jose. George, join us. Hi, George.
2: Oh, hello. Uh, yesterday, I, I heard an interview uh, with a journalist. Who was interviewing the governor of of Ohio? You know, was asked about this exact issue. In other words, what is
0: your opinion about the big lie that's happening in the GOP? <laughs> of course, the governor
4: of Ohio is a uh, is an ardent Republican, but he simply refused to answer the question. He he moved. Instead, he said, well, I'm worried about the issues affecting the people of Ohio. And he went on and on and on. He never answered the question. The journalist just said, oh, well, OK, thank you. H- how should the journalist respond to that type of non-response?
3: George, thanks. Jay Rosen, your thoughts on that? And then also just how these days it doesn't feel like grilling them is having the same effect to <laughs> grilling guests as it used to.
4: Yeah, Um Again, I don't think there's any good answer to that. What would I do? I suppose I would ask the question um, several times and then say, I take it by your response that you aren't going to answer my question and eventually move on. The other thing you can do is make it a condition of proceeding with the interview that any guest acknowledge the results of the 2020 election. Um, And I think there's a good argument for doing that as well. Um, But then uh, you're kind of saying that you won't be hearing, quote unquote, from the other side. Um, And that just shows you what a difficult situation journalists are in with this asymmetry in our national politics right now.
3: And I mean, I'm thinking also about, as you say, I've, I've watched... Chris Wallace, for example, interviewing folks on his program, people who would tend to be more forthcoming, potentially, uh, with certain journalists on Fox News, not so much there. It was very difficult for him to try to nail anyone down with regard to whether or not they believed that uh, President Biden was legitimately elected. We saw recently The Washington Post tried to have Josh Hawley on to talk about his book, and they... The reporter did ask some tough questions, but I don't. it just really didn't seem to serve the audience or serve the truth, which is what you were talking about. I, I don't know if you have a reaction to that recently, which got a lot of coverage.
4: Yes, I wrote about it. Uh, I watched it. Um, I think part of what's going on there is that TV guests have long since absorbed the fact that there's a limited amount of time in any interview. And as a result, most interviewers, whether it's online or on network television, will ask once, maybe they'll follow up and ask again, very rarely, they will ask a third time, but eventually the requirement to move on to other issues because you only have 10 minutes and you have 20 minutes, or in this case, you only had like 28 minutes is going to take over. And the guests kind of know that. And so you can run out the clock. um, And Josh Hawley was very skilled at doing that. and, And he completely evaded any attempt to hold him accountable for what he did in January 6th. And this is also in the background here is there's still something I don't know if you feel it, but there's still something about the insurrection on January 6th that feels unassimilated, like we haven't quite gotten our mind around it. It's still sitting there, like this yes. giant thing. There hasn't really been accountability for it. And the whole idea that we could sort of just go on as if it didn't happen is impossible. But it's so huge, it's hard for the political system to react to it, because half the political system is is, um, so is trying guilty to move of on. On it. Yeah, guilty yeah. of and, it. And, yeah. and it's hard to move on.
3: It's, that's exactly the conversation that I've been having with my producers about this, just this sense of what what has happened here. <laughs> like, it's so unsatisfying yeah, and so unclear. Yes, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I sympathize with you, then. Yeah, and I, I mean, the other part of this, too, is, as as I think about the Josh Hawley example and the Washington Post and the attempt for TV to try to get people to, to try to dig into an issue, um, is the fact that, In many ways, that has been turned and used by Senator Hawley, for example, to further um, raise his profile, to become an even more influential person. I mean, that's also sort of the crazy side effect or consequence as well of trying to question, hold people to the truth
4: yes once you decide that you don't have to be reality based to meet your political objectives you join this whole alternative world which has a lot of goodies for you including appearances on on fox news um but yeah but and josh uh holly is in that situation
3: let me go to kathleen and martinez hi kathleen
6: Hi, good morning. Thank you very much for this conversation. I totally agree with the things that have been said this morning, especially Jake Tapper and then the follow-up that you presented as far as the truth and the falsehoods. I think there should be reconsideration of some of these news channels as to whether or not they're actually news and reevaluate them as far as whether or not they should have a contract that says that they're news. I just don't think they present it. They present all these falsehoods, and they—they they, everybody gets aggrandized over the whole thing, and they, they seem to be able to raise millions of dollars as a direct result of it. I myself am tired of hearing about it. I want to hear more about what happened on January 6th. I want to hear some about legal issues regarding what's going on uh, with government, with the last with the administration. But I also want to hear a lot about what this current administration is doing and how they're handling things and the difference that they're handling it. And it doesn't have to be compared to the other one so much as it is that people get more confidence in what's going on now and things moving forward. I think that's very important, but not to gloss over any of the past. I do think there needs to be a way to disassemble this stuff and really look at it. Um, But I I don't know how to present that.
3: Yeah, you raised so many important things there. At first, Jay Rosen, if you had any immediate reactions to what Kathleen is saying.
4: Well, I think it's very hard to mandate in the United States an improvement in news coverage because of how strong our First Amendment is. And w- there is regulation of um, of broadcasting, but it's very thin. And it's not something I would want to turn over to a government that is so crippled in many ways by this um, asymmetry that we've been talking about. So that's a very hard problem is how do you force um, cable news to be better through regulation? I'm not sure we know how to do that.
3: Right. The second part of what Kathleen was saying that I thought was interesting was just how much you end up not being able to focus on the really substantive issues, for example, of what the Biden administration is doing when you have at the same time to deal with something that's such a – that's such a whopper or that's such so so crazy it sort of forces the dialogue away from the really substantive things and then at the same time those lies are also creating or thwarting abilities say to get to the truth of the insurrection for example um it's it's played a role in in Thwarting the House's ability to get a commission set up that can really have teeth and look at what happened with regard to the insurrection, yeah um, it's yeah, we're talking about, as you brought up arizona right we're we're talking about voter suppression tactics in states we're We're talking about all of those kinds of things that all um, you know, basically trickle out from this <laughs> if not yeah what's flo- flood?
4: Let's, another way to describe what's happening is that the the normal um, oppositions of liberals versus conservatives and Democrats versus Republicans and party versus party, where they have, as I said earlier, different views on how to proceed from the same set of facts, that world is slowly going away. And instead you have the conflict between people who are willing to be reality based in both parties versus those who have sort of taken leave of that universe and gone off into cancel culture and um and recounts and uh, arizona audits and uh the war on christmas the war on dr seuss all these kind of like fantasy issues that keep a certain core uh, voter group uh aroused and Um, That's what's so interesting about this moment with Liz Cheney is that there's like a coalition of people who are willing to be reality based in both parties, and they're now set against the, um, the fantasy caucus, if you will.
3: Well, Marsha writes, Fox News needs to be defunded. It is on 24-7 on all mess halls and all military bases around the globe. It is a propaganda machine. Fox is part of the most basic cable packages. Customers cannot deselect it. The only way to block it is to use parental controls. But that means it is funded by millions who would not make that choice if they had a choice. I don't know if you have, if you want to say anything about Yeah, that's a good point. It's Mm
4: -hmm. one one way that we might be able to make progress is not through government regulation so much but pressure on the cable companies and part, part of it might be able to come through government that to end the situation where where fox news is being subsidized by many many people who don't actually watch it or want it um, through the peculiarities of uh, cable economics so that's something where i think public pressure discussion Maybe even popular movements could put pressure on the cable companies, so that um, Fox News is not considered basic cable. It's still available for anybody who wants it, but it doesn't come to your home just because you're a subscriber.
3: Let me go to John next in El Cerrito. Hi, John.
2: Hi. Thanks for taking my call. So my comment is, you know, we're we're now at the point where we know that um, these senators and Republican congressmen are on the news and are saying things that they know are untrue. They are saying known falsehoods. And why are we not seeing uh newscasters and the like just calling them liars because they are at this point. We saw a little bit of a resurgence of that at some point, but it seems like they're still unsure about using that L word and they should not be at this point.
3: Hmm. Jay Rosen, what do you think? Do you think that well, people that- Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: That is changing. Um, I agree. There was, uh, for example, just this week, um, an AP story. The AP is like the baseline for for journalism, um, in which it just basically said that the, the big lie is making it very difficult for Republicans. And there wasn't any, uh, excuse me, um, but uh, especially the the events of the last couple of weeks have caused journalists to Just be open about it, because if they aren't, they're kind of undermining their own profession. You know, journalism has to stand for verifiable truth or it has no real purpose.
3: We're talking with Jay Rosen, media critic, NYU journalism professor, editor of PressThink.org. And you, our listeners, are with us telling us about your thoughts on media coverage of politicians who continue to promote the lie that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. What do you think the press should do differently? What do you think media consumers should do differently? 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Tweet us or reach us on Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
7: We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. We're talking about the challenges of covering the Republican Party in a post-insurrection landscape, the challenges for the media. And Jay Rosen, media critic and NYU journalism professor, is with us, also writer and editor of PressThink.org. You, our listeners, are also with us, sharing your reactions, opinions, thoughts on the media coverage post-insurrection and as a result of the big lie and how to handle Politicians who continue to basically lie about the results of the 2020 election. Allison writes I think news organizations need to more clearly distinguish journalism and opinion. One cannot be labeled news. They should have different labels and airtimes. Eric writes, for years I've admired the way the BBC, in contrast to American reporters, are willing to challenge their interviewees when they utter falsehoods, and the way they don't allow their interviewees to evade the question, sometimes by bluntly saying, you're not answering the question. Please answer the question. American reporters need to be more like that. Hold these people to account. It's uncomfortable, but it must be done. You know, Jay Rosen, I was thinking about John's comment just before the break about using the word lie, and I actually have almost begun to wonder if saying lie isn't even strong enough anymore. I we just saw the former president the other day trying to turn the idea of the big lie on its head meaning the big lie is actually uh the fact that Joe Biden won. And so the big lie is being co-opted. It, it almost feels like that that's not even adequate.
4: Yes, the situation is so extreme that even calling things a lie doesn't really help that much and it, it In many ways, it inflames the situation, even though it may be necessary, um, because things are at such an extreme now that the very power of language itself is kind of expiring. Because if Trump can say, well, you're giving us the big lie, um, you know, and and kind of make words meaningless, that's a larger issue, Um, even though it's still necessary to use the words that we have. And I I wanted to read this lead from the AP uh, that appeared May 9th, just to show you what I mean, that it is becoming more common to use that term. The AP writes in its first paragraph, allegiance to a lie has become a test of loyalty to Donald Trump and a means of self-preservation for republicans that's not presented as an analysis or the ap's editorial that's just like presented as the fact yes and um that that's kind of a different tone from mainstream journalism also i wanted to add that it's true that uh, interviewers from the uk also from like australia new zealand are just more used to pressing people who don't answer the question and even making fun of them if they don't than American on air journalists. And I'm not sure why that difference exists, but it has existed for quite a while.
3: Let me go to Michael in Oxnard next. Hi Michael.
2: Hi there, how are you doing?
3: Great. What's on your mind?
2: Um it's kind of it's
4: on topic and off topic, but it's uh about how like Fox News has been stating that Antifa and other terrorist groups are the ones who attacked on January 6th.
1: Yet there's no accountability
4: into those investigations. And even though the Proud Boys and other Trump supporters have been charged with storming the Capitol, why are they still pushing this lie that it's Antifa and it wasn't the Trump supporters?
3: Michael, thanks. Jay Rosen, feel free to react to whatever you want to say about Michael Michael's comment. But I guess the other thing I want to know is how do you characterize Fox News?
4: Mm. Well, let me take the first part. Um, it looked for a time to a lot of journalists that there was going to be a reckoning with January 6th and Donald Trump's role in it. If you recall, Mitch McConnell made some very clear and critical statements about President Trump's leadership of the January 6th insurrection. Kevin McCarthy did the same thing. There was Lindsey Graham saying, I'm done with this guy, if you recall those words. And so for a while, it looked as if the Republican Party was going to separate itself from the insurrection, from uh, Trump's big lie, and go off in another direction. And since then, it's that impression has been reversed. And that's another thing that's going on this week with the Liz Cheney uh events. Yes. Uh and what was your second question? Oh, about Fox News. Um I consider Fox News to be a kind of strange hybrid of a media property, a political organization, and an entertainment genre. And it doesn't really resemble any other network. Uh, And whenever we try to put upon Fox News, the framework of uh, a news network, it doesn't work, but it's not quite an entertainment channel like, um, you know, Entertainment Tonight or uh, many others either. And it's not solely a political operation. So it's it's this unique and uniquely dangerous hybrid Mm. of three different things.
3: I I was curious if you were going to use the word dangerous, because I do wonder sometimes about how reality based media is wringing its hands over how it needs to handle uh, Republicans, uh, Republican politicians who are supporting or continuing or silently going along with the big lie or or how to deal with right-wing conspiracies and so on. And what does that do when you are willing to have this arm that with with a tremendous number of eyeballs, a uh, tremendous number of viewers who vote and who will play a role in who ends up representing this country in very powerful positions? Mm-hmm.
4: Well, I think we have seen over the last few years that Fox News is an ally of autocratic leaders who would change the United States into an autocratic country. I think there's no question that that Fox News would assist in that if the autocrat was coming from the right direction. and, And if... And if he or she expressed the Fox News view of the world, and that's a very troubling thing because it's not clear how with our first amendment, we can change that.
3: Well, Claire writes, what about the effects of the dominion voting systems lawsuit against Fox? Could that help change the course of the big lie? Um, We can get your thoughts, but I'm also curious. One thing I like about Claire's comment is I, I feel like we've come to the conclusion that while Media are very powerful. They really can't do this alone, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) preserve democracy alone.
4: Right. Well, that's a very good point. Um, We have always had a media policy in this country from the very beginning. For example, we made it cheaper to send newspapers and magazines through the mail from the start of the republic because we thought it was important for people to receive information. Uh, And uh, from the beginning, we've had a broadcasting policy. We've always had media policy because we have recognized that shaping the media also shapes democracy. That's something that the United States has known for centuries. But um, we sometimes overlook this fact In part because we don't have any central agency that is supposed to be regulating, looking out on, uh, shaping the news media for public benefit because we have this other thing, the First Amendment, that sort of discourages that. So that's been a problem in media studies for a long time, and we're really living with the results of that problem now.
3: In terms of living with the results of that problem, when I asked you earlier just where does this ultimately go? One of the things that I'm seeing crop up a lot more are stories, op-eds, about how quickly it will happen that Republican officials simply refuse to concede to Democratic victories. That, Mm -hmm. and I mean, to me, that just feels like, it, it reveals how important the integrity of our elections is to a functioning democracy, but that's really scary and it doesn't even feel that far off, potentially.
4: I don't think it's far off at all. I was writing about this last night on, on Twitter. Um, Mm. It's, it's right around the corner in the sense that the mechanism for states with Republican majorities in the legislature or governorship to undo the results of the election are already there. I think in, in um, 2020, they, they kind of fooled around at the margins of that and and almost like held back because they weren't quite sure they wanted to do it. But now with this wave of changes in election laws that we've seen, and I'm sure your station has reported on, the means for doing that are, are there. This is, it's not a fantasy. And um, that's why this turn towards a two-party system where one of the two parties is anti-democratic is so worrisome and important. And I didn't anticipate this, but in a way, it's worse than having Donald Trump in office because the 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 Trump attitudes and um, and ideology have transferred themselves to the entire Republican party. and that's what Liz Cheney is fighting,
3: yes, it was one thing to have that be the focus, to have it be President Trump and this this sense from some that once you get rid of somebody who who lies in office constantly but also has, the role of being the president of the United States and as such demanded coverage to some extent because of their Mm -hmm. ability to affect other people, that it would kind of go away. But I think what everybody is reckoning with right now is that, yes, there are very affirmative steps that the Republican Party is taking to continue the kinds of things that many people pinned on Trump. Exactly. And so I do want to ask you quickly about that whole thing with covering the president. And if you think that's changed, one of the things that was always an issue here was allowing the president's press conferences to be played, you know, sometimes they would last forever and it would be, you were broadcasting lie after lie from the president, but the, but the justification was, well, he's the president.
4: (laughs) Right. Uh, Well, I wrote about this a lot while it was happening. Um, And this is another case of, Underlying normal journalistic practice were these assumptions about how the political world worked and how politicians would behave. Uh, And one of the assumptions for the president was that um, what the president says is news, right? By definition. Uh, And that was something that evolved in Washington from like the late 1950s up uh, to the president to the president but what the president says is news never anticipated a president who for example would deliberately polarize the nation in order to try and grab the bigger half of the country he was breaking into nobody anticipated that nobody anticipated a president Who would spread dangerous information about public health that could actually get people killed from the podium of the white house the rules didn't take that into account and again and again during the years of donald trump in office the press ran into these situations where there was no precedent for it or the practices they were um, engaged in were counterproductive and Broadcasting scientific and health, public health misinformation from the White House is an example of a practice whose premise had collapsed.
3: We're talking with Jay Rosen, media critic and NYU journalism professor. He writes about current events and media developments and is the editor of PressThink.org. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me try to bring in David from San Francisco. Hi, David. Join us.
2: Oh, morning. Uh, You know, I'm like 50 years in being in radio. I started very early. And uh, there used to be a thing called public good, that a a radio station, in order to get a renewal on their license, they had to prove that they had done some public good. And when they run a company that has nothing but expensive lies foreign policy lies, racial lies, interactive, uh, societal lies, selling fake advertisements, that radio station and most TV stations should have lost their license years ago. And then when something like Clear Channel comes in and buys up, uh, what, 1,200 stations at once, fires 100,000 voices, and most of them in the news department, It's no wonder that America has gotten to this point. So I'm just wondering whether public good can get back into a strong position in the FCC and in our commons. You know, so Mm -hmm. Wi-Fi would be the commons.
3: Jay Rosen.
4: That's a great point. Um, It used to be that the FCC had a stronger public interest rationale from which it worked. Um, Like so many other things, that has changed due to the mania for deregulation uh, since, uh, essentially, uh, the Reagan years. And now we have whole parts of the government that simply don't function at all. It's a little bit easier to see with another agency... Uh, The FEC, the Federal Election Commission, which essentially has shut down because the um, divide between the parties is so extreme that it can never actually take a vote. Um, But the FCC is in a similar uh, position and it's essentially abandoned its role in trying to determine where where the public interest is in, in broadcasting in favor of making possible bigger and bigger combinations of television stations, which is what brought us uh, Sinclair Broadcasting, which is suitable for an hour in itself on uh, KQED. <laughs>
3: yes. Um, well, thank you, David, for the call. Madeline tweets, how do we break the echo chambers? It seems like nothing matters if people who should be hearing this message aren't listening to programs such as this or other programs that challenge them to think critically. Jay Rosen, is it – another person is asking if you could answer the question about the Dominion lawsuit. Is it the Dominion lawsuit? Is it these outside things that are happening to try to break uh, people's media diets, uh, the echo chamber issue that Madeline tweets about?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, two two answers. One is the um, the lawsuit may be effective in the sense that it's a very good case, and it may very well – work out to the uh, plaintiff's advantage. And it could cost Fox News big time. But of course, Fox News makes so much money that it's hard to see it getting slowed down, even if the case uh, worked against them. For the smaller networks like Newsmax, it it could be more of a blow. And then the, um, the first question was about what again? Echo chambers. Echo chambers, yeah. I think the only thing that I could think of to work on that, is if you talk not about national politics, but problem solving at the local level, some of these echo chamber problems disappear a little bit. Hmm. Uh, People are still able to get on the same page about fixing that bridge, about the schools their kids go to, about Um, crime in their cities there's a lot more agreement on basic facts at the local level and as soon as the conversation jumps to national politics it all falls apart so that's that's like the only um uh, method i can think of for for getting out of this box that we're in
3: that's such a good point and i think at the same time you're also underscoring what the role of the media needs to be (laughs) and who we serve um yeah we serve our communities, we serve our public. I don't know if you want to add anything to that in terms of just helping us think about the role of the media going forward.
4: Well, I, I mean I like the way NPR is organized for this purpose. It is it's made up of local stations that have a primary duty to their local publics, and then it adds up to a national news service which addresses the part of us that we have in common across those locales. I think that's a good structure. Um, and these problems that we've spent an hour on are not going to be solved really at the federal or national level. They've gone too far, and so it's really only at the local level that people are going to be able to join a common reality again and start getting something done.
3: Well, Jay Rosen, thanks so much for talking with us.
4: You're so welcome. Thanks for having me on.
3: And my thanks to Grace One for producing today's segment and to our listeners for their questions and comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds
7: for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.